Welcome to Jaded YA Reads, a YA read-aloud podcast for teens, tweens, and adults brought to you by the Wells Public Library. This season, we'll be reading The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien. Chapter 9 The day after the battle with the spiders, Bilbo and the dwarves made one last despairing effort to find a way out before they died of hunger and thirst. They got up and staggered on in the direction which eight out of the thirteen of them guessed to be the one in which the path lay, but they never found out if they were right. Such day as there ever was in the forest was fading once more into the blackness of night, when suddenly out sprang the light of many torches all round them, like hundreds of red stars. Out leaped wood elves with their bows and spears and called the dwarves to halt. There was no thought of a fight, even if the dwarves had not been captured in such a state that they were actually glad to be captured, their small knives, the only weapons they had, would have been of no use against the arrows of the elves that could hit a bird's eye in the dark. So they simply stopped dead and sat down and waited, all except Bilbo, who popped on his ring and slipped quickly to one side. That is why, when the elves bound the dwarves in a long line, one behind the other, and counted them, they never found or counted the hobbit. Nor did they hear or feel him trotting along well behind their torchlight as they led off the prisoners into the forest. Each dwarf was blindfold, but that did not make much difference, for even Bilbo, with the use of his eyes, could not see where they were going, and neither he nor the others knew where they had started from anyway. Bilbo had all he could do to keep up with the torches for the elves were making the dwarves go as fast as ever they could, sick and weary as they were. The king had ordered them to make haste. Suddenly the torches stopped, and the hobbit had just time to catch them up before they began to cross the bridge. This was the bridge that led across the river to the king's doors. The water flowed dark and swift and strong beneath and at the far end were gates before the mouth of a huge cave that ran into the side of a steep slope covered with trees. There the great beaches came right down to the bank till their feet were in the stream. Across the bridge the elves thrust their prisoners, but Bilbo hesitated in the rear. He did not at all like the look of the cavern mouth, and he only made up his mind not to desert his friends just in time to scuttle over at the heels of the last elves before the great gates of the king closed behind them with a clang. Inside the passages were lit with red torchlight, and the elf guards sang as they marched along the twisting, crossing, and echoing paths. These were not like those of the goblin cities. They were smaller, less deep underground, and filled with cleaner air. In a great hall with pillars hewn out of living stone sat the elven king on a chair of carven wood. On his head was a crown of berries and red leaves, for autumn was come again. In the spring, he wore a crown of woodland flowers. In his hand, he held a cavern staff of oak. The prisoners were brought before him, and though he looked grimly at them, he told his men to unbind them, for they were ragged and weary. Besides, they need no ropes in there, said he. There is no escape from my magic doors for those who were once brought inside. Long and searchingly he questioned the dwarves about their doings, and where they were going to, and where they were coming from, but he got little more news out of them than out of Thorin. They were surly and angry and did not even pretend to be polite. "'What have we done, O king?' said Balin, who was the eldest left. 
Is it a crime to be lost in the forest, to be hungry and thirsty, to be trapped by spiders? Are the spiders your tame beasts or your pets, if killing them makes you angry? Such a question, of course, made the king angrier than ever, and he answered, Is it a crime to wander in my realm without leave? Do you forget that you were in my kingdom, using the road that my people made? Did you not three times pursue and trouble my people in the forest, and rouse the spiders with your riot and clamor? After all the disturbance you have made, I have a right to know what brings you here, and if you will not tell me now, I will keep you all in prison until you have learned sense and manners. Then he ordered the dwarves each to be put in a separate cell and to be given food and drink, but not to be allowed to pass the doors of their little prisons, until one of them least was willing to tell him all he wanted to know. But he did not tell them that Thorin was also a prisoner with them. It was Bilbo who found that out. Poor Mr. Baggins. It was a weary long time that he lived in that place all alone, and always in hiding, never daring to take off his ring, hardly daring to sleep, even tucked away into the darkest and remotest corners he could find. For something to do, he took to wandering about the Elven King's palace. Magic shut the gates, but he could sometimes get out if he was quick. Companies of the Wood Elves, sometimes with the King at their head, would time to time ride out to hunt, or to other business in the woods and in the lands to the east. Then if Bilbo was very nimble, he could slip out just behind them, though it was a dangerous thing to do. More than once he was nearly caught in the doors as they clashed together when the last elf passed, yet he did not dare to march among them because of his shadow, altogether thin and wobbly as it was in torchlight, or for the fear of being bumped into and discovered. And when he did go out, which was not very often, he did no good. He did not wish to desert the dwarves, and indeed he did not know where in the world to go without them. He could not keep up with the hunting elves all the time they were out, so he never discovered the ways out of the wood, and was left to wander miserably in the forest, terrified of losing himself, until a chance came of returning. He was hungry too outside, for he was no hunter, but inside the caves he could pick up a living of some sort by stealing food from store or table when no one was at hand. I am like a burglar that can't get away, but must go on miserably burgling the same house day after day, he thought. This is the dreariest and dullest part of all this wretched, tiresome, uncomfortable adventure. I wish I was back in my hobbit hole by my own warm fireside with the lamp shining. He often wished, too, that he could get a message for help sent to the wizard, but that, of course, was quite impossible and he soon realized that if anything was to be done, it would have to be done by Mr. Baggins, alone and unaided. Eventually, after a week or two of this sneaking sort of life, by watching and following the guards and taking what chances he could, he managed to find out where each dwarf was kept. He found all of their twelve cells in different places of the palace, and after a time he got to know his way about very well. What was his surprise one day to overhear some of the guards talking and to learn that there was another dwarf in prison too, in a specially deep, dark place? He guessed at once, of course, that this was Thorin, and after a while he found that his guess was right. At last, after many difficulties, he managed to find the place where no one was about, and to have a word with the chief of the dwarves. Thorin was too wretched to be angry any longer at his misfortunes, and was even beginning to think of telling the king all about his treasure and his quest, which shows how low-spirited he had become, 
when he heard Bilbo's little voice at his keyhole. He could hardly believe his ears. Soon, however, he made up his mind that he could not be mistaken, and he came to the door and had a long whispered talk with the hobbit on the other side. So it was that Bilbo was able to take secretly Thorin's message to each of the other imprisoned dwarves, telling them that Thorin their chief was also in prison close at hand, and that no one was to reveal their errand to the king, not yet. Nor before Thorin gave the word. For Thorin had taken heart again, hearing how the hobbit had rescued his companions from the spiders, and was determined once more not to ransom himself with promises to the king of a share in the treasure until all hope of escaping in any other way had disappeared. Until, in fact, the remarkable Mr. Invisible Baggins, of whom he began to have a very high opinion indeed, had altogether failed to think of something clever. The other dwarves quite agreed when they got the message. They all thought their own shares in the treasure, which they quite regarded as theirs, in spite of their plight in their still unconquered dragon, would suffer seriously if the wood elves claimed part of it, and they all trusted Bilbo. Just what Gandalf had said would happen, you see. Perhaps that was part of his reason for going off and leaving them. Bilbo, however, did not feel nearly so hopeful as they did. He did not like being depended on by everyone, and he wished he had the wizard at hand. But that was no use. Probably all the dark distance of Mirkwood lay between them. He sat and thought and thought, until his head nearly burst, but no bright idea would come. One invisible ring was a very fine thing, but it was not much good among fourteen. But of course, as you have guessed, he did rescue his friends in the end, and this is how it happened. One day, nosing and wandering about, Bilbo discovered a very interesting thing. The great gates were not the only entrance to the caves. A stream flowed under part of the lowest regions of the palace, and joined the forest river some way further to the east, beyond the steep slope out of which the main mouth opened. Where this underground watercourse came forth from the hillside, there was a water gate. There the rocky roof came down close to the surface of the stream, and from it a portcullis could be dropped right to the bed of the river to prevent anyone coming in or out that way. But the portcullis was often open, for a good deal of traffic went out and in by the water gate. If anyone had come in that way, he would have found himself in a dark, rough tunnel leading deep into the heart of the hill. But at one point, where it passed under the caves, the roof had been cut away and covered with great oaken trapdoors. These opened upwards in the king's cellars. There stood barrels and barrels and barrels, for the wood elves, and especially their king, were very fond of wine though no vines grew in those parts. The wine and other goods were brought from very far away, from their kinsfolk in the south, or from the vineyards of men in distant lands. Hiding behind one of the largest barrels, Bilbo discovered the trapdoors in their use, and lurking there, listening to talk of the king's servants, he learned how the wine and other goods came up to the rivers or overland to the long lake. It seemed a town of men still throve there, built out on bridges far into the water as a protection against enemies of all sorts, and especially against the dragon of the mountain. From Lake Town, the barrels were brought up the forest river. Often they were just tied together like big rafts and pulled or rowed up the stream. Sometimes they were loaded onto flat boats. When the barrels were empty, the elves cast them through the trap doors, opened the water gate, and out the barrels floated on the stream, bobbing along 
until they were carried out by the current to a place far down the river where the bank jutted out, near to the very eastern edge of Mirkwood. There they were collected and tied together and floated back to Lake Town, which stood close to the point where the forest river flowed into the long lake. For some time, Bilbo sat and thought about this water gate, and wondered if it could be used for the escape of his friends, and at last he had the desperate beginnings of a plan. The evening meal had been taken to the prisoners. The guards were tramping away down the passages, taking the torchlight with them and leaving everything in darkness. Then Bilbo heard the king's butler bidding the chief of the guards good night. Now come with me, he said, and taste the new wine that has just come in. I shall be hard at work tonight, clearing the cellars of the empty wood, so let us have a drink first to help the labor. Very good, laughed the chief of the guards. I'll taste with you and see if it is fit for the king's table. There is a feast tonight, and it would not do to send up poor stuff. When he heard this, Bilbo was all in a flutter, for he saw that luck was with him, and he had a chance at once to try his desperate plan. He followed the two elves until they entered a small cellar and sat down at a table, on which two large flagons were set. Soon they began to drink and laugh merrily. Luck of an unusual kind was with Bilbo then. It must be potent wine to make a wood elf drowsy, but this wine, it would seem, was the heady vintage of the great gardens of Dorwinen, not meant for his soldiers or his servants, but for the king's feasts only, and for smaller bowls, not the butler's great flagons. Very soon, the chief guard nodded his head, then he laid it on the table and fell fast asleep. The butler went on talking and laughing to himself for a while, without seeming to notice, but soon his head too nodded to the table and he fell asleep and snored beside his friend. Then in crept the hobbit. Very soon, the chief guard had no keys, but Bilbo was trotting as fast as he could along the passages towards the cells. The great bunch seemed very heavy to his arms, and his heart was often in his mouth, in spite of his ring, for he could not prevent the keys from making every now and then a loud clink and clank, which put him all in trouble. First, he unlocked Balin's door, and locked it again carefully as soon as the dwarf was outside. Balin was most surprised, as you can imagine, but glad as he was to get out of his wearisome little stone room, he wanted to stop and ask questions, and know what Bilbo was going to do, and all about it. No time now, said the hobbit, you just follow me. We must all keep together and not risk getting separated. All of us must escape, or none, and this is our last chance. If this is found out, goodness knows where the king will put you next, with chains on your hands and feet too, I expect. Don't argue, there's a good fellow. Then he went from door to door until his following had grown to twelve, none of them any too nimble, what with the dark, and what with their long imprisonment. Bilbo's heart thumped every time one of them bumped into another, or grunted, or whispered in the dark. Drat this dwarvish racket, he said to himself. But all went well, and they met no guards. As a matter of fact, there was a great autumn feast in the woods that night, and in the halls above. Nearly all of the king's folk were merrymaking. At last, after much blundering, they came to Thorin's dungeon, far down in a deep place and fortunately not far from the cellars. "'Pon my word,' said Thorin, when Bilbo whispered to him to come out and join his friends. Gandalf spoke true, as usual. A pretty fine burglar you make, it seems, when the time comes. I am sure we are all forever at your service, whatever happens after this. But what comes next?' 
Bilbo thought the time had come to explain his idea as far as he could, but he did not feel at all sure how the dwarves would take it. His fears were quite justified, for they did not like it a bit, and started grumbling loudly in spite of their danger. We shall be bruised and battered to pieces, and drowned too, for certain, they muttered. We thought you had got some sensible notion when you managed to get hold of the keys. This is a bit. This is a very mad idea. Very well, said Bilbo, very downcast, and also rather annoyed. Come along back to your nice cells, and I will lock you all in again, and you can sit there comfortably and think of a better plan. But I don't suppose I shall ever get hold of the keys again, even if I feel inclined to try. That was too much for them, and they calmed down. In the end, of course, they had to do just what Bilbo suggested, because it was obviously impossible for them to try and find their way into the upper halls, or to fight their way out of the gates that closed by magic, and it was no good grumbling in the passages until they were caught again. So following the hobbit down into the lowest cellars they crept. They passed a door through which the chief guard and the butler could be still be seen happily snoring with smiles upon their faces. The wine of Dorwinian brings deep and pleasant dreams. There would be a different expression on the face of the chief guard next day, even though Bilbo, before they went on, stole in and kind-heartedly put the keys back on his belt. That will save him some of the trouble he is in for, said Mr. Baggins to himself. He wasn't a bad fellow, and quite decent to the prisoners. It will puzzle them all, too. They will think we had a very strong magic to pass through all those locked doors and disappear. Disappear? We have got to get busy very quick if it is to happen. Balin was told off to watch the guard and the butler and give warning if they stirred. The rest went into the adjoining cellar with the trap doors. There was little time to lose. Before long, as Bilbo knew, some elves were under orders to come down and help the butler get the empty barrels through the doors into the stream. These were, in fact, already standing in rows in the middle of the floor, waiting to be pushed off. Some of them were wine barrels, and these were not much use, as they could not be easily opened at the end without a deal of noise, nor could they easily be secured again. But among them were several others, which had been used for bringing other stuffs, butter, apples, all sort of things, to the king's palace. They soon found thirteen with room enough for a dwarf in each. In fact, some were too roomy, and as they climbed in the dwarves, thought anxiously of the shaking and the bumping they would get inside. Though Bilbo did his best to find straw and other stuff to pack them in as cozily as they could be managed in a short time. At last, twelve dwarves were stowed. Thorn had given a lot of trouble and turned and twisted in his tub and grumbled like a large dog in a small kennel, while Balin, who came last, made a great fuss about his air holes and said he was stifling even before his lid was on. Bobo had done what he could to close holes in the sides of the barrels and to fix on the lids as safely as could be managed, but now he was left alone again, running round putting the finishing touches to the packing and hoping against hope that his plan would come off. It had not been done a bit too soon. Only a minute or two after Balin's lid had been fitted on, there came the sound of voices and the flicker of lights. A number of elves came laughing and talking in the cellars and singing snatches of song. They had left a merry feast in one of the halls and were bent on returning as soon as they could. "'Where's old Galleon, the butler?' said one. "'I haven't seen him at the tables tonight. He ought to be here now to show us what to be done.' "'I shall be angry if the old slow coach is late,' said another. I have no wish to waste time down here while the song is up. Ha ha, came a cry. 
Here's the old villain with his head on a jug. He's been having a little feast all to himself and the friend the captain. Shake him, wake him, shouted the others impatiently. Galleon was not at all pleased at being shaken or wakened, and still less at being laughed at. You're all late, he grumbled. Here am I, waiting and waiting down here, while you fellows drink and make merry and forget your tasks. Small wonder if I fall asleep from weariness. Small wonder, said they, when the explanation stands close at hand in a jug. Come give us taste of your sleeping draught before we fall too. No need to wake the turnkey yonder. He has had his share by the looks of it. Then they drank once round and became merry, mighty merry all of a sudden. But they did not quite lose their wits. Save us, Galleon, cried some. You began your feasting early and muddled your wits. You have stacked some full casks here instead of the empty ones, if there is anything in wait. Get on with the work, growled the butler. There is nothing in the feeling of weight in an idle tosspot's arms. These are the ones to go and no others. Do as I say. Very well, they answered, rolling the barrels to the opening. On your head be it if the king's full butter tubs and his best wine is pushed into the river for the lake men to feast on for nothing. Roll, 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 rolling down the hole. Heave ho, splash plump, down they go, down they bump. So they sang as first one barrel, and then another rumbled to the dark opening and was pushed over into the cold water some feet below. Some were barrels really empty, some were tubs nearly neatly packed with a dwarf each. But down they all went, one after another, with many a clash and a bump, setting on top of ones below, smacking into the water, jostling against the walls of the tunnel, knocking into one another, and bobbing away down the current. It was just at this moment that Bilbo suddenly discovered the weak point in his plan. Most likely you saw it some time ago and have been laughing at him, but I don't suppose you would have done half as well yourself in his place. Of course, he was not in a barrel himself, nor was there anyone to pack him in, even if there had been a chance. It looked as if he would certainly lose his friends this time. Nearly all of them had already disappeared through the trap door and get utterly left behind and have to stay lurking as a permanent burglar in the elf caves forever. For even if he could have escaped through the upper gates at once, he had precious small chance of ever finding the dwarves again. He did not know the way by land to the place where the barrels were collected. He wondered what on earth would happen to them without him, for he had not had time to tell the dwarves all that he had learned, or what he had meant to do once they were out of the wood. While all these thoughts were passing through his mind, the elves, being very merry, began to sing a song round the river door. Some had already gone to haul on the ropes and pulled up the portcullis as the water gate, as to let out the barrels as soon as they were all afloat below. Down the swift dark stream you go, back to lands you once did know. Leave the halls and caverns deep, leave the northern mountains steep, where the forest wide and dim, stoops in shadow gray and grim. Float beyond the world of trees, out into the whispering breeze, past the rushes, past the reeds, past the marshes waving weeds, through the mist that riseth white, up from mere and pool at night. Follow, follow, stars that leap, up the heavens cold and steep. Turn when dawn comes over land, over rapid, over sand, south away and south away, seek the sunlight and the day, back to pasture, back to mead, where the kind and oxen feed, Back to gardens on the hills, where the berry swells and fills, under sunlight, under day, south away and south away, down the swift dark stream you go, 
back to lands you once did know. Now the very last barrel was being rolled to the doors. In despair and not knowing what else to do, poor little Bilbo caught hold of it and was pushed over the edge with it. Down into the water he fell, splash, into the cold, dark water with the barrel on top of him. He came up again, spluttering and clinging to the wood like a rat, but for all his efforts he could not scramble on top. Every time he tried, the barrel rolled round and ducked him under again. It was really empty and floated light as a cork. Though his ears were full of water, he could hear the elves still singing in the cellar above. Then suddenly the trap doors fell to with a boom and their voices faded away. He was in the dark tunnel, floating in icy water all alone, for you cannot count friends that are all back packed up in barrels. Very soon, a gray patch came in the darkness ahead. He heard the creak of the water gate being hauled up, and he found that he was in the midst of a bobbing and bumping mass of casks and tubs, all pressing together to pass under the arch and to get out of the open stream. He had as much as he could do to prevent himself from being hustled and battered to bits, but at last the jostling crowd began to break up and swing off, one by one, under the stony arch and away. Then he saw that it would have been no good even if he had managed to get astride his barrel, for there was no room to spare, not even for a hobbit, between its top and the suddenly stooping roof where the gate was. Out they went under the overhanging branches of the trees on either bank. Bilbo wondered what the dwarves were feeling and whether a lot of water was getting into their tubs. Some of those that bobbed along by him in the gloom seemed pretty low in the water, and he guessed that these had dwarves inside. I do hope I put the lids on tight enough, he thought, but before long he was worrying too much about himself to remember the dwarves. He managed to keep his head above the water, but he was shivering with the cold, and he wondered if he would die before the luck turned, and how much longer he would be able to hang on, and whether he should risk the chance of letting go and trying to swim to the bank. The luck turned all right before long. The eddying current carried several barrels close ashore at one point, and there for a while they struck against some hidden root. Then Bilbo took the opportunity of scrambling up the side of his barrel while it was held steady against another. Up he crawled like a drowned rat and lay on the top spread out to keep the balance as best he could. The breeze was cold but better than the water, and he hoped it would, he would not suddenly roll off again before they started off once more. Before the barrels broke free again and turned and twisted off down the stream and out into the main current. Then he found it quite as difficult to stick, to stick on as he had feared, but he managed it somehow, though it was miserably uncomfortable. Luckily, he was very light, and the barrel was a good big one, and being rather leaky, had now shipped a small amount of water. All the same, it was like trying to ride, without bridle or stirrups, a round-bellied pony that was always thinking of rolling on the grass. In this way, at last Mr. Baggins came to a place where the trees on either hand grew thinner. He could see the paler sky between them. The dark river opened suddenly wide, and there it was joined to the main water of the forest river flowing down in haste from the king's great doors. There was a dim sheet of water no longer overshadowed. And on its sliding surface there were dancing and broken reflections of clouds and of stars. Then the hurrying water of the forest river swept all the company of caskets and tubs away to the north bank, in which it had eaten out a wide bay. 
This had a shingly shore under hanging banks and was walled at the eastern end by a little jutting cape of hard rock. On the shallow shore, most of the barrels ran around, although a few went on the bump against the stony pier. There were people on the lookout on the banks. They quickly pulled and pushed all the barrels together into the shallows, and when they had counted them, they roped together and left them till the morning. Poor dwarves. Bilba was not badly off now. He had slipped from his barrel and waded ashore, and then sneaked along to some huts that he could see near the water's edge. He no longer thought twice about picking up a supper uninvited if he got the chance. He had been obliged to do it for so long, and he knew now only too well what it was to be really hungry, not merely politely interested in the dainties of a well-filled larder. Also, he had caught a glimpse of a fire through the trees, and that appealed to him with his dripping and ragged clothes clinging to him cold and clammy. There is no need to tell you much of his adventures that night, for now we are drawing near the end of the eastward journey and coming to the last and greatest adventure, so we must hurry on. Of course, helped by his magic ring, he got on very well at first, but he was given away in the end by his wet footsteps and the trail of drippings that he left wherever he went or sat, and also he began to snivel, and wherever he tried to hide he was found out by the terrific explosions of suppressed sneezes. Very soon there was a fine commotion in the village by the riverside, but Bilbo escaped into the woods carrying a loaf and a leather bottle of wine and a pie that did not belong to him. The rest of the night he had to pass wet as he was and far from a fire, but the bottle helped him to do that, and he actually dozed a little on some dry leaves, even though the year was getting late and the air was chilly. He woke again with an especially loud sneeze. It was already gray morning, and there was a merry racket down by the river. They were making up a raft of barrels, and the raft elves would soon be steering it down the stream to Lake Town. Bilbo sneezed again. He was no longer dripping, but he felt cold all over. He scrambled down as fast as his stiff legs would take him, and managed just in time to get on to the mass of casks without being noticed in the general bustle. Luckily, there was no sun at the time to cast an awkward shadow and for a mercy he did not sneeze again for a good while. There was a mighty pushing of poles. The elves that were standing in the shallow water heaved and shoved. The barrels now all lashed together, creaked and fretted. This is a heavy load, some grumbled. They float too deep. Some of these are never empty. If they had come ashore in the daylight, we might have had a look inside, they said. No time now, cried the raftmen. Shove off. And off they went at last, slowly at first, until they had passed the point of rock where the other elves stood to fend them off with poles, and then went quicker and quicker as they caught the main stream and went sailing away down, down towards the lake. They had escaped the dungeons of the king and were through to the wood, but whether alive or dead still remains to be seen. Chapter 10 Those lands had changed much since the days when dwarves dwelt in the mountain, days which most people now remembered only as a very shadowy tradition. They had changed even in recent years, and since the last news that Gandalf had had of them. Great floods and rains had swollen the waters that flowed east, and there had been an earthquake or two, which some were inclined to attribute to the dragon, alluding to him chiefly with a curse and an ominous nod in the direction of the mountain. 
The marshes and bogs had spread wider and wider on either side too. Paths had vanished, and many a rider and wanderer too, if they had tried to find the lost ways across. The elf rode through the wood which the dwarves had followed on the advice of Bayorn, now came to a doubtful and little-used end at the eastern edge of the forest. Only the river offered a safe way from the skirts of Mirkwood in the north to the mountain-shadowed plains beyond, and the river was guarded by the Wood Elves' king. So you see Bilbo had come, in the end, by the only road that was any good. It might have been some comfort to Mr. Baggins, shivering on the barrels, if he had known that news of this had reached Gandalf far away and given him great anxiety, and that he was in fact finishing his other business, which does not come into this tale, and getting ready to come in search of Thorin's company. But Bilbo did not know it. All he knew was that the river seemed to go on and on and on forever, and he was hungry and had a nasty cold in his nose, and did not like the way the mountain seemed to frown at him and threaten him as it drew ever nearer. After a while, however, the river took a more southerly course, and the mountain receded again, and at last, late in the day, the shores grew rocky, the river gathered all its wandering waters together into a deep and rapid flood, and they swept along at great speed. The sun had set when turning with a, another sweep towards the east, the forest river rushed into the long lake. There it had a wide mouth with stony cliff-like gates at either side whose feet were piled with shingles. The long lake. Bilbo had never imagined that any water that was not the sea could look so big. It was so wide that the opposite shores looked small and far, but it was so long that its northerly end which pointed towards the mountain, could not be seen at all. Only from the map did Bilbo know that away from up there, where the stars of the wane were already twinkling, the running river came down into the lake from Dale, and with the forest river, filled with deep waters, what must once have been a great deep rocky valley. At the southern end, the doubled waters poured out again over high waterfalls, and ran away hurriedly to unknown lands. In the still evening air, the noise of the falls could be heard like a distant roar. Not far from the mouth of the forest river was the strange town he heard the elves speak of in the king's cellars. It was not built on the shore, though there were a few huts and buildings there, but right out on the surface of the lake, protected from the swirl of the entering river by a, by a promontory of rock which formed a calm bay. A great bridge made of wood ran out to where, on huge piles made of forest trees, was built a busy wooden town. Not a town of elves, but of men, who still dared to dwell here under the shadow of the distant Dragon Mountain. They still throve on the trade that came up from the river from the south, and was carted past the falls to their town. But in the great days of old, when Dale in the north was rich and prosperous, they had been wealthy and powerful, and there had been fleets of boats on the waters and some were filled with gold and some with warriors in armor, and there had been wars and deeds which were now only a legend. The rotting piles of a greater town could still be seen along the shores where the waters sank in a drought. But men remembered little of that, though some still sang old songs of the dwarf kings of the mountains, Thror and Thrain, of the race of Durin, and of the coming of the dragon and the fall of the lords of Dale. Some sang, too, that Thror and Thrain would come back one day, and gold would be flown in rivers through the mountain gates, and all that land would be filled with new song and new laughter. 
but this pleasant legend did not much affect their daily business. As soon as the raft of barrels came in sight, boats rowed out from the piles of the town, and voices hailed the raft steers. Then ropes were cast and oars were pulled, and soon the raft was drawn out of the current of the forest river and towed away round the high shoulder of rock into the little bay of Lake Town. There it was moored not far from the shoreward head of the great bridge. Soon men would come up from the south and take some of the casks away, and others they would fill with goods that they had brought back to be taken back up the stream to the wood elves' home. In the meanwhile, the barrels were left afloat while the elves of the raft and the boatmen went to feast in Lake Town. They would have been surprised if they could seen what happened down by the shore, after they had gone and the shades of night had fallen. First of all, a barrel was cut loose by Bilbo and pushed to the shore and opened. Groans came from inside, and out crept a most unhappy dwarf. Wet straw was in his draggled beard, he was so sore and stiff, so bruised and buffeted he could hardly stand or stumble through the shallow water to lie groaning on the shore. He had a famished and a savage look like a dog that had been chained and forgotten in a kennel for a week. It was Thorin, but you could have only told it by his golden chain, by the color of his now dirty and tattered sky-blue hood with its tarnished silver tassel. It was some time before he would even be polite to the hobbit. Well, are you alive or are you dead? asked Bobo quite crossly. Perhaps he had forgotten that he had had at least one good meal more than the dwarves, and also the use of his arms and legs, not to speak of a greater allowance of air. Are you still in prison or are you free? If you want food, and if you want to go on with this silly adventure, it's yours after all and not mine. You had better slap your arms and rub your legs and try and help me get the others out while there is still a chance. Thorin, of course, saw the sense of this, so after a few more groans he got up and helped the hobbit as well as he could. In the darkness, floundering in the cold water, they had a difficult and very nasty job finding which were the right barrels. Knocking outside and calling only discovered about six dwarves that could answer. These were unpacked and helped ashore where they sat or lay muttering and moaning. They were so soaked and bruised and cramped that they could hardly yet realize their release or be properly thankful for it. Dwalin and Balin were two of the most unhappy, and it was no good of asking them to help. Biffer and Bofer were less knocked about and drier, but they lay down and would do nothing. Feely and Keely, however, who were young, for dwarves, and had also been packed more neatly with plenty of straw into smaller casks, came out more or less smiling, with only a bruise or two and a stiffness that soon wore off. "'I hope I never smell the smell of apples again,' said Feely. "'My tub was full of it. To smell apples everlastingly when you can scarcely move and are cold and sick with hunger is maddening. I could eat anything in the world right now for hours on end, but not an apple.' With the willing help of Feely and Keely, Thorn and Bilbo at last discovered the remainder of the company and got them out. Poor fat Bomber was asleep or senseless. Dory, Nori, Ori, Owen, and Glowen were waterlogged and seemed only half alive. They all had to be carried one by one and laid helpless on the shore. Well, here we are, said Thorin, and I suppose we ought to thank our stars and Mr. Baggins. I am sure he has had a right to expect it, though, though I wish he could have arranged a more comfortable journey. Still, Still, all very much at your service once more, Mr. Baggins. No doubt we shall feel properly grateful when we are fed and recovered. In the meanwhile, what next?
No doubt we shall feel properly grateful when we No doubt we shall feel properly grateful when we are fed and recovered. In the meanwhile, what next? I suggest Lake Town, said Bilbo. What else is there? Nothing else could, of course, be suggested, so leaving the others, Thorn and Feely and Keeley and the Hobbit went along the shore to the Great Bridge. There were guards at the head of it, but they were not keeping very careful watch, for it was so long since they had been any real need. Except for occasional squabbles about river tolls, they were friends with the Wood Elves. Other folk were far away, and some of the younger people in town openly doubted the existence of any dragon in the mountain, and laughed at the greybeards and gammers who said that they had seen him flying in the sky in their young days. That being so, it is not surprising that the guards were drinking and laughing by a fire in the hut, and did not hear the noise of the unpacking of the dwarves, or the footsteps of the four scouts. Their astonishment was enormous when Thorin Oakenshield stepped in through the door. Who are you and what do you want? They shouted, leaping to their feet and groping for weapons. Thorin, son of Thrain, son of Thror, king under the mountain, said the dwarf in a loud voice, and he looked it, in spite of his torn clothes and draggled hood. The gold gleamed on his neck and waist. His eyes were dark and deep. I have come back. I wish to see the master of your town. Then there was tremendous excitement. Some of the more foolish ran out of the hut as if they expected the mountain to go golden in the night and all the waters of the lake turn yellow right away. The captain of the guard came forward. And who are these, he asked, pointing to Feely and Keely and Bilbo. The sons of my father's daughter, answered Thorin, Feely and Keely of the race of Durin, and Mr. Baggins, who has traveled with us out of the west. If you have come in peace, lay down your arms, said the captain. We have none, said Thorin, and it was true enough. Their knives had been taken from them by the Wood Elves, and the great sword Orcris, too. Bilbo had, had, Bilbo had his short sword hidden as usual, but he said nothing about that. We have no need of weapons. We returned at last to our oaths. We returned at last to our own, as spoken of old. Nor could we fight against so many. Take us to your master. He is at feast, said the captain. Then all the more reason to taking us to him, burst in Feely, who was getting impatient at these solemn solemnities. We are worn and famished after our long road, and we have sick comrades. Now make haste and let us have no more words, or your master may have something to say to you. Follow me then, said the captain, and with six men about them, he led them over the bridge, through the gates, and into the marketplace of the town. There was a wide circle of quiet water surrounded by the tall piles on which they built the greater houses, and by long wooden quays with many steps and ladders going down to the surface of the lake. From one great hall shone many lights, and there came the sound of many voices. They passed its doors and stood blinking in the light looking at the long tables filled with folk. I am Thorin, son of Thrain, son of Thor, king under the mountain. I return, cried Thorin in a loud voice from the door, before the captain could say anything. All leapt to their feet. The master of the town sprang from his great chair, but none rose in greater surprise than the wrathmen of the elves, who were sitting at the lower end of the hall. Pressing forward before the master's table, they cried, These are prisoners of our king that have escaped! Wandering vagabond dwarves that could not give any good account of themselves, sneaking through the woods and molesting our people. Is this true? asked the master. 
As a matter of fact, he thought it far more likely that than the return of the king under the mountain, if any such person had ever existed. It is true that we were wrongly waylaid by the elven king and imprisoned without cause as we journeyed back to our own land, answered Thorin. The lock nor bar may hinder the homecoming spoken of old, nor is this town in the wood elves' realm. I speak to the master of the town of the men of the lake, not to the raft men of the king. Then the master hesitated and looked from one to the other. The elven king was very powerful in those parts, and the master wished for no enmity with him, nor did he think much of old songs, giving his mind to trade and tolls, to cargoes and gold, to which habit he owed his position. Others were of different mind, however, and quickly the matter was settled without him. The news had spread from the doors of the hall like fire throughout all the town. People were shouting inside the hall and outside it. The quays were thronged with hurrying feet. Some began to sing snatches of old songs concerning the return of the king under the mountain, that it was Thor's grandson, not Thor himself that had come back, did not bother them at all. Others took up the song and rolled loud and high over the lake. The king beneath the mountain, the king of cower and stone, the lord of silver fountains, shall come into his own. His crown shall be upholden, his harp shall be restrung, his halls shall echo golden, to songs of yore resung. The woods shall wave on mountains, and grass beneath the sun, his wealth shall flow in fountains, and the rivers run. The lake shall the, the streams shall run in gladness, the lakes shall shine and burn, all sorrow fail in sadness, at the mountain king's return. So they sang, or very much like that, only there was a great deal more of it, and there was much shouting as well as the music of harps and of fiddles mixed up with it. Indeed, such excitement had not been known in the town in the memory of the oldest grandfather. The wood elves themselves began to wonder greatly, and even to be afraid. They did not know, of course, how Thorn had escaped, and they began to think their king might have made a serious mistake. As for the master, he saw there was nothing else for it but to obey the general clamor, for the moment at any rate, and to pretend to believe that Thorin was what he said. So he gave up to him his own great chair and set Feely and Keely beside him in places of honor. Even Bilbo was given a seat at the high table, and no explanation of where he came in, no songs had alluded to him even in the obscurest way, was asked for in the general bustle. Soon afterwards, the other dwarves were brought into the town amid scenes of astonishing enthusiasm. They were all doctored and fed and housed and pampered in the most delightful and satisfactory fashion. A large house was given up to Thorn and his company. Boats and rowers were put at their service, and crowds sat outside and sang songs all day, or cheered if any dwarf showed so much as his nose. Some of the songs were old ones, but some of them were quite new and spoke confidently of the sudden death of the dragon and of cargoes of rich presents coming down the river to Lake Town. These were inspired largely by the master, and they did not particularly please the dwarves, but in the meantime they were well contented and they quickly grew fat and strong again. Indeed, within a week they were quite recovered, fitted out in fine cloth of their proper colors, with beards combed and trimmed, and proud steps. Thorin looked and walked as if his kingdom was already regained, and Smaug chopped up into little pieces. Then, as he had said, the dwarf's good feeling towards the little hobbit grew stronger every day. There were no more groans or grumbles. They drank his health, 
and they patted him on the back, and they made a great fuss of him, which was just as well, for he was not feeling particularly cheerful. He had not forgotten the look of the mountain, nor the thought of the dragon, and he had besides a shocking cold. For three days he sneezed and coughed, and he could not go out, and even after that his speech at banquets was limited to thag you very much. In the meanwhile, the wood elves had gone back up the forest river with their cargoes, and there was great excitement in the king's palace. I have never heard what happened to the chief of the guards and the butler. Nothing, of course, was ever said about keys or barrels while the dwarves stayed in Lake Town, and Bilbo was careful never to become invisible. Still, I dare say, more was guessed than was known, though doubtless Mr. Baggins remained a bit of a mystery. In any case, the king knew now the dwarves' errand, or thought he did, and he said to himself, Very well, we'll see. No treasure will come back through Mirkwood without my having something to say in the matter but I expect they will all come to a bad end and serve them right. He, at any rate, did not believe in dwarves fighting and killing dragons like Smaug, and he strongly suspected attempted burglary or, or something like that. Which shows he was a wise elf and wiser than the men of the town, though not quite right as we shall see in the end. He sent out his spies about the shores of the lake and as far northward to the mountain as they would go, and what and waited. At the end of a fortnight, Thorin began to think of departure. While the enthusiasm still lasted in the town was while the enthusiasm still lasted in the town was the time to get help. It would not do to let everything cool down with delay, so he spoke to the master and his counselors and said that soon he and his company must go on towards the mountain. Then for the first time the master was surprised and a little frightened and he wondered if Thorin was, after all, really a descendant of the old kings. He had never thought that the dwarves would actually dare to approach Smaug, but he believed they were frauds who would sooner or later be discovered and be turned out. He was wrong. Thorin, of course, was really the grandson of, grandson of the king on the mountain, and there is no knowing what a dwarf will not dare to do for revenge or the recovery of his own. But the master was not sorry at all to let them go. They were expensive to keep, and their arrival had turned things into a long holiday in which business was at a standstill. Let them go and bother Smaug, and see how he welcomes them, he thought. Certainly, old Thorin Thrain's son, Thor's son, was what he said. You must claim your own. The hour is at hand, spoken of old. What help we can offer shall be yours, and we trust to your gratitude when the kingdom is regained. So one day, although autumn was now getting far on, and winds were cold, and leaves were falling fast, three large boats left Lake Town, laden with rowers, dwarves, Mr. Baggins, and many provisions. Horses and ponies had been sent round by a circuitous path to meet them at their appointed landing place. The master and his counselors bade them farewell from the great steps of the town hall that went down to the lake. People sang on the quays and out of the windows. The white oars dipped and splashed, and off they went north up the lake on the last stage of their long journey. The only person thoroughly unhappy was Bilbo.